Welcome or welcome back everyone to a new episode of the United Citizens of Europe podcast. This episode will talk about the sanctions of the European Union to China and EU-China relations moving forward. Today it's a special episode as both Anton and I will be hosting. I'll be doing the first interview with Fabrizia Candido. Hi Fabrizia, can you please introduce Hi. yourself? Sure. So my name is Fabrizia Candido. I am Italian. I am a sonologist. I work in Belgium as China account manager for an AI company. And I am editor for China Files and analyst for Cento Studi Internazionali. So I write about China and Asia, which is my passion. And it's also the focus of my degree. I have a master's degree in international relations with a specific focus on China. Uh, and I gained that in Università degli Studi di Napoli Orientale and Fudan University in Shanghai. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, let's talk a bit about the history of EU-China relations. Yes, yes, sure. So the relations between the European Union and People's Republic of China were established in 1975 with the first European commissioner visiting China. From that moment on, numerous agreements on trade, mostly textile trade and commercial cooperation were signed. Then in 1983, the first science and technology cooperation program was launched and five years later, in 1988, a delegation of the European Commission was formally opened in Beijing. Nevertheless, as we all know, one year later, in 1989, as a reaction to the Tiananmen facts, the European Commission freezed relations with China and imposed uh, a number of sanctions, including an arms embargo. But in the 19th, China's growing economy became uh, an attractive focus for many European leaders who quickly eased off China isolation. The, officially, um, the official bilateral dialogue was in fact re-established in 1992, and in 2001, when China joined the WTO, this creates an announcement of the commercial relation with the European Union. Although some problems like lack of transparency, discrimination against foreign companies, strong government intervention in the, in the economy still remain. In fact, in 2013, the European Union and China launched negotiation for an investment agreement. And the aim was, in fact, to provide investors on both sides with fair long term access to European Union and Chinese markets to protect investors and their investments. Last December, after uh, exactly, as I said, eight years of a negotiation, the European Union and China uh, reached an agreement in principle, comprehensive agreement on investment, but deliberation for the adoption and ratification of this agreement are yet to take place. And two days ago, the European Parliament cancelled uh, uh, a specific meeting for that and this comes as a threat for uh, the signing of this agreement that could be probably uh, be delayed. So this is happening at the toughest moment over a decade of the Sino-European relations, right after the Beijing tit for tat countermeasures targeting the European Union sanctions over Xinjiang affairs. Yeah. Okay, so now let's go to 2021 and to the, I don't know how to say this in Chinese, but let, let's say the Chinese Congress Assembly. What are some key takeaways from the Chinese Congress Assembly of 2021? Yeah, so in Chinese, this moment is called Lianhui, which stands for the two sessions. Okay, and uh, the Congress, 
<laughs> the Congress is called the National People's Congress. And during this year, it was uh, extremely important as it endorsed the, China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party latest five years development blueprint, which calls for China to become more self-reliant on developing key technologies and to reduce dependence on the United States and Europe for innovation. So the plan also aims to boost domestic consumption and this, this has become a very famous concept as it is called the dual circulation and to reduce economic reliance on exports of lower quality goods, which are more or less the one that we all know and that we all see in our daily life when we think about Chinese products. Mm -hmm. So China is also aiming for more than 6% GDP growth in 2021. This has been something uh, that was beyond expectations, as last year, for example, there was no GDP growth target. But this year's uh, analysts also said that this goal is rather modest and below market estimates, which range from 80% to 10%. In fact, it is true that China growth in 2020 was only uh, of 2%, but and this was also the slowest pace in over 40 years due to the coronavirus pandemic. But however, China was the only major economy to grow in 2020. Also, the military budget for uh, 2021 has been increased by 6.8%, uh, uh, which is slightly higher than last year's growth. And other takeaways uh, take refer to the growing the demographic challenge. China will in fact gradually extend the retirement age to the gap between rural and urban areas uh, to debt reduction and naturally to commitment to on, uh, on green energy. Uh, Beijing in fact also uh, laid out plans to reduce carbon intensity by 80% and energy intensity by 13% as it aims to have emissions peak before 2030 and become carbon neutral by 2060. Okay, wow. And what was decided on the Hong Kong issue though? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. So uh, a new electoral reform passed. Only patriots will be allowed to stand for election and democratic representation will be reduced. So the plan will allow the Communist Party to appoint more of Hong Kong lawmakers, reducing the share elected by the public. And more specifically, the election committee members were increased by 300 people. To, to reach the total of 1,500. Seats in the Legislative Council were also increased from 70 to 90. But those additional seats and members are meant for groups chosen among Beijing loyalists. So they will have a huge influence as the election committee is responsible for choosing Hong Kong chief executive and many of the members of the Legislative Council. And therefore, an increased numbers of pro-Beijing uh, officials would weaken the power of the opposition. And indeed, the move is seen as a crackdown on the democratic movement and an erosion of the autonomy guaranteed to the city when it was handed over to China in 1997. Oh, wow. Okay, so now <laughs> we have to move forward. We cannot um, discuss in detail everything. Um, we have to move forward and let's talk a bit about the mask diplomacy. So... What does it mean and why was that relevant last year? Yes, so very simply and shortly, by shipping medical supplies, medical equipment, medical simple devices to other countries. And when I say other countries, I mainly refer to the countries that were, were or are still part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So 
also part of the European countries, China was seeking to boost its image as a responsible global leader. It was relevant as at that time China's soft power was at its lowest since China was considered responsible for the spreading of coronavirus infection within the country and also beyond the border. And it was also accused of hiding critical information, specifically also regarding the doctor case in Wuhan. We are now using the expression vaccine diplomacy, mm-hmm. and uh, some countries in fact received Chinese vaccines in the form of donation, while others purchased them or were offered a loan to buy them. So China attempted to improve its image through mask diplomacy last year, posing uh, as a part of the solution rather than the source of the problem. And we can now say that vaccine diplomacy can be understood as a natural extension of this process. The difference is that now competition is way higher. Also, yeah. we know that uh, vaccines are coming from Russia, from uh, from Europe, from the United States. And a vaccine is a way more complex product than the mask, which are a simple yeah. piece of <laughs> medical equipment. It's, it's, not, it's not so hard to produce masks. The problem was the quantity of masks that needed to be produced last year. But there's no much know-how behind a simple mask, which is different with this kind of vaccine because it's very innovative and also it's, it needed to be developed in very short time. And, and we all know how difficult it is to get information about the clinical trials uh, and about the, um, the risk that can be associated to this vaccine in terms of safety, for example, and adverse events. So with vaccine diplomacy, China is also attempting to pose as a global leader in pharma and biotech field and, of course, in innovation. Okay, well, um, okay, so this was basically an overview of what happened in the last years. And now we're going straight to the to the core of this interview. So on Monday, 22nd of March, the European Union included China in the list of sanctioned countries. Of course, China didn't take it well. EU sanctions are imposed unilaterally based on human rights violations of Xinjiang um, against the Uyghurs. I'm sorry if I mispronounced the, um, no, no, the, that's fine. The, <laughs> um, can you please please give us more context on the issue? Yes, sure. So the European Union, as I said before, uh, in the first question you asked me, issued its first sanction on China since 1989, condemning Beijing abuse of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So Uyghur, Uyghurs are like a minority. They are Muslim religion and they have Turkish uh, origin. They live in this area of Western China, which is called Xinjiang, which means new border. And uh, it's a very strategical area for for China, uh, not only because uh, there's oil there, and we, we all know how oil can be strategic, but also because Xinjiang is on the border and it's on the border with other Muslim, uh, Muslim countries. So, it can represent a risk as uh, Xinjiang people have a very strong identity and they may claim uh, independence one day. This is uh, the fear of the Communist Party. Also because uh, historically speaking, there was this desire for all the population living in that area of Central Asia 
and this dream is is known to be the dream of East Turkestan. So this uh, huge country that would put together uh, minorities, Muslim minorities of Central Asia that live across uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, uh, Turkmenistan uh, and Uzbekistan. So um, after the European Union issued its first sanctions, Canada, Britain and the US also issued new Xinjiang focus sanctions. This also came with, um, with the ambassadors of China uh, working in different European countries to be called to the foreign minister um, foreign affairs minister to have a discussion about what's, what was going on. Also, we have to take into account that the European Union represented the biggest trading partner for China. And same uh, also is uh, China is the EU biggest source of import and is its second biggest export market. So it's a very important trading partner in any case. So, of course, the situation uh, needs to be solved. But instead, Beijing immediately reacted against the European Union with sanction on its own. More specifically, uh, four individuals and one entity associated with the human rights abuses in Xinjiang are now subject to asset freezes and travel ban in the EU. They likely do not have interest in European business anyway. So we can say that the move is largely symbolic. But Europeans' willing willingness to register its objection to to Beijing using a tool not employed in this way since 1989, we can say that somehow has shocked Chinese diplomats, opening to a cold, cold war scenario. This week, for example, the foreign ministers of China and Russia met to reaffirm their country's close ties. And this also came after a very difficult summit between China and the US in Alaska last week. So Beijing responded to the US uh, sanctions and worded the EU to stop lecturing others on human rights and interfering in their internal affairs, which is a line similar to what top Chinese diplomat Yang Jiechi told his American counterparts in the talks in Alaska last week, the one that I just mentioned. And those sanctions by China include not only several EU members of parliament, plus also uh, Adrian Zenz, who is a German researcher whose analysis drew international attention to the, to the scale of abuses in Xinjiang, and Merix, which is the largest China-focused think tank in Europe. And as I said before, this makes the ratification of the comprehensive agreement on investment way more slow and difficult. So also, we are not sure that this will, in the end, really be ratified. This is something that um, maybe China China functionaries do not know very very well. Well, I don't want to say they don't know, but of course it's different how it works uh, in our institutions in Europe than how it works in China, because we have a, an European Parliament. So after that the agreement has been found, of course there are other steps that need to be taken. So before celebrating, there's still a, a long way to go, and this tit for tat is not helping in any case. Yeah. Do you think it's going to be possible in the end to find a solution and sign the agreement, or is it completely off the table? No, I don't think I don't think that the agreement uh, eventually will not be signed. I don't think this scenario is really possible because it arrived after eight long years of negotiation. It was. It is something that it was uh, reckoned as necessary, and I think it would be too big failure not to sign it. But I think it will be used as blackmail 
for mm -hmm. uh, this kind of tit for tat. So, of course, uh, the EU knows that it has this power, has the ratification still need to take place. And China knows that it's a huge market for European companies and for European investors. So they can both play the role in this game, I think. Yeah, we've already seen one company that tried to go against the Chinese market. They've really seen their company almost fail. Uh, and I'm talking about the Dolce & Gabbana scandal that provoked a uh, diplomatic scandal. <laughs> so Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But that, I think, um, in the case of Dolce & Gabbana, there was really a mistake about the marketing manager. I don't, I, I don't want to blame him too much, but uh, <laughs> it was a really offensive advertisement. Yeah. Uh, it, it also represents that Dolce & Gabbana had no knowledge of Chinese culture and also no respect for Chinese culture. But for example, going against, as you said, uh, we can say the Chinese institutions, Mm -hmm. It's what what is happening now with H and M. So H and M, but also Nike. Oh, yeah. uh, he had they they said that they, they refused to use cotton, which is produced in Xinjiang, and that that is because uh, one of the abuses is also uh, hard labors. And so the idea is that this cotton is produced by people that are in uh, Xinjiang camps that are forced to work in this cotton field. But then the Chinese nationalism, which is a phenomenon extremely developed in China and most of all on social media, like Weibo, for example, reacted on this and they decided to uh, to burn, for example, Nike or H&M product and to make them literally disappear on all e-commerce platforms, but also on, mag uh, on on malls, magazine and stuff. Like now it's very difficult, for example, if you want to buy something online from H&M in China, you cannot do that. You cannot buy on uh, the e-commerce platforms that are that are used in China. And this is, of course, a huge loss in terms of of revenues for for these yeah. uh, for these shops for these com companies, and this comes with Chinese nationalism. So it's really people from China they they do not want how can I say interferences from mm -hmm. Western countries, and this also is very linked to what as I said the diplomats said in Alaska meeting. They don't want other people from uh, abroad lecturing them on internal affairs. So. It's really something that is uh, considered in this moment important, to, both to Chinese Chinese state, Chinese party, but also to a part of population which is which is really really nationalist in this moment. Um, I'm gonna ask you one last question. Like, do you do you think um, that this? I mean, the way China is reacting is also like kind of like an inspiration to other to developing countries because like Western countries do tend to lecture other developing countries on how they should behave now with the with the sustainable development having this western centric views i think this is an inspiration to other to other developing countries to be like hey that's right like that's true like please stop lecturing us yeah it can be it can be i think it can be right like that also if we think about mao zedong uh, we can say third wordism like he, yeah, exactly. uh, he wanted China to. to be like a brother of the other third world countries. And this is something that China is still using. Instead, China says that it's still part of the third world. Of course, this is very, very hard to imagine now if we think about China, which is the second uh, largest economy in the world. But this is a little bit uh, what is happening, for example, in uh, the relations between Africa and China. Uh, yeah. 
we always talk about Washington consensus. So like the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, when go when going to to Africa, it says yes, we can we can give you money, but we need also you to reform this 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 and this. So they want to impose their condition to these countries. This is something that China try not to do. Uh, and this is also why uh, some people also use the expression Beijing consensus. They say that we can give you money, no, no problem. We we don't we do not care on the way you manage your internal affairs. Of course, this comes with other consequences, and you probably uh, have heard about debt trapped. But this is, I think, another another topic of discussion. But yes, there is this difference on the way China approaches other uh, other countries in the third world, and this also helped China to to make uh, itself be perceived as a brother to them. Yeah. Okay, yeah, thank you very much for your contribution. It was very nice having you and hopefully can have another um, episode with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It was very nice. Hello, everyone. My name is Anton Meshkov, and now I'm interviewing Alisa Azarova, a sinologist, and we're talking today about how EU sanctions and uh, the problem with Xinjiang people is represented in Chinese press and Chinese internet. Hello, Alisa. It's great to have you here. Uh, can you please uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. It's a great pleasure to be here, too. My name is Alisa. I'm working as a translator for RIA Novosti. It's a big Russian newspaper in the Department of uh, Foreign Press. Uh, so I'm basically translating Chinese news to Russian. Yeah, I know a lot <laughs> about uh, Chinese reaction on um, uh, worldwide news nowadays. Uh, so I'm here to give some um, uh, give some words about uh, uh, EU sanctions, Xinjiang, and so on and so on. And and you're also you're also a sinologist, right? You you studied China for a long time. Yeah, I'm a sinologist, so I basically know Chinese <laughs> for sure. Yes. And uh, yeah, I, I've graduated from High School of Economics uh, from uh, Oriental Studies. Oriental Studies, um, Far East. So yeah. my, my, my major is uh, China. So uh, tell me, well, when did it all start? Uh, because the sanctions from the from the West, uh, we talked a little bit before, and you said that it all started not with the EU sanctions, but with private companies imposing some form of sanctions on the Chinese businesses. Yeah, it's true. It's actually started last year, in, in the middle of last year, when um, H&M, uh, Nike and other Western companies, uh, they uh, put sanctions, uh, like private sanctions, uh, on uh, Xinjiang cotton. Uh, but that time, it uh, actually didn't have any reaction uh, in China because that time I was already working <laughs> and we didn't translate anything about it. Um, so it was just like H&M and other companies, they said, uh, we don't want uh, Xinjiang cotton anymore. And everybody was like, okay, no problem. No reaction at all, like nothing. It is okay. very strange because now, they uh, uh, they put this topic uh, to like to Chinese people again, and it became a big big scandal in Chinese uh, network. 
Okay, so, so, uh, so basically uh, it all was rather quiet until the EU has imposed sanctions on, on China. Yeah, true. Um, so after uh, uh, EU sanctions, um, like almost three days ago, there were a bunch of um, articles about Xinjiang uh, cotton and Xinjiang uh, sanctions and Xinjiang situation at all uh, in China, uh, Chinese press. And uh, that uh, cotton became a very big and very powerful topic uh, because uh, um, People's Republic of China government, uh, they said, okay, you put sanctions on us, uh, but you started it before. It was very bad that time already. And now, now when you try to, uh, to, uh, to put pressure on us, we will do our best to confront you. And that's why um, this cotton is very important because, um, uh, how do you say it? Um, the problem is um, uh, cotton um, cotton fa factories um, on cotton factories. There are a lot of Xinjiang uh, labor uh, people that are working there, and uh, because of that, um, um, the, because of that uh, ban from uh, Western companies, uh, a lot of people they can lose their jobs, and therefore it will affect human rights, of course, yeah? So um, Chinese government now doing this uh, tricky thing that it's Western companies who are in charge of this uh, human uh, violation of human rights. Mm -hmm. So basically, if I understood it correctly, uh, Chinese government is saying, uh, okay, you started this war even before, and you violated rights and uh, you violated lives of uh, of Xinjiang people even before us. Is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, so they're trying to do this now, um, but it's it's a pretty new idea because it uh, it came to uh, open air just like uh, three days before. Before that, uh, they were just trying to defend themselves, um, saying that it's uh, none of the business of uh, EU and so on and so on. Okay, so uh, mostly the focus now is on those uh, anti-cotton sanctions, right? Yeah. And uh, how how is this uh, how is this expressed? How how is reaction expressed normally? Firstly, if we talk about uh, EU sanctions, uh, it was a very tough response uh, from China. Uh, in principle, the Chinese people they are very fond of writing programming articles in which they say, "If you behave this way, it will be bad for you, not for us." and we will react and we will show you how strong and powerful China is. But usually uh, these words are mostly empty threats because the main concept of Chinese um, foreign policy is restraint. So they're doing nothing, they're just showing their power and say, okay, we are very powerful. And because of, the, of our power, we are not doing anything bad to you. And this is our good will for you. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, them, themselves repeated this uh, restraint, restraint principle uh, in media a lot. Um, but uh, however, this time it's very different from uh, from before because this time they decided to respond 
to EU sanctions uh, they, with contrast actions. And this is like extraordinary event for China because usually they are sitting very quiet and don't do anything. Um, that's why this time it steered up public opinion in China and became such a, a high profile incident because it's never happened before. Mm-hmm. Okay, do I understand it correctly that uh, you are translating the press? You're not talking about how, how it all expressed in, in the newspapers, right? Yeah, I'm, uh, like, I'm in charge just uh, for translating, so I'm trying to, um, uh, to greet Russian people with uh, uh, Chinese opinion. Uh, so we, uh, I'm also translating comments. Uh, of Chinese people, like common people. And of course, a lot of programming programming articles pushed from mm-hmm. the government because it's a very common situation. There are uh, a lot of newspapers in China and all of them, they are subordinate to Chinese government. So they're not, uh, they can't write anything bad about China, of course. And of course, they have to be a defense, a defense voice of Xi Jinping and the government itself. So nowadays they are writing a lot of programming articles uh, in which they basically said that um, all rights and freedoms of Xinjiang people are under defense, uh, are under law, including religion, including uh, there is no forced uh, labor and there is no uh, genocide, of course, in China and in Xinjiang. There is no uh, persecution of Muslims. Uh, this is all lies and all slander and so on and so on. This is like main uh, main voice uh, of Chinese newspapers nowadays. About the European sanctions and including the private companies, they say that uh, they are also violating rights and that they are actually behaving not in a very good manner. But on the other hand, about their own behavior, the party is saying that uh, everything is good and they're not violating anyone's anyone's rights at all, right? Yeah, this is uh, this is the um, uh, like main <laughs> main theme in all newspapers. They're saying that everything is okay, everything is normal, and basically the main uh, the main idea of all these articles is uh, this is not uh, um, uh, EU business at all. And uh, this is our business. This is China uh, internal affairs. And uh, you have no right to meddle it. And uh, they're speaking very, very often about interference in the internal um, affairs of China. They are considering all the situation as the interference. And uh, of course, all news about sanctions and animation on on Xinjiang, they usually uh, say these things. And uh, do they somehow explain all those? Uh, because there, are, there was many, there were many videos and photos from from Xinjiang which look disturbing to say the least. Uh, do they uh, explain somehow the situation? So they say, of course, that no rights are violated. But do they explain uh, what's happening on the videos or on the on the photos or in the reports? Usually they stay to the line uh, that it's all terrorist attacks uh, or somehow uh, prevention of these terrorist attacks. And uh, if we talk about forced labor, they usually say that it's all about um, uh, camps. So it's uh, like educational camps and uh, they are trying to 
um, get people's life better, mm-hmm. uh, get people's lives better, to give them job, to give them profession, and so on and so on. So it's it's not forced labor. It's all just educational matters. Nothing uh, illegal there. No violation of human rights at all. Okay, wow, that's uh, that's very interesting. And uh, you also mentioned that uh, you're looking into some comment sections as well. Can you elaborate on this, please? Uh, yeah. Uh, like in this uh, situation with uh, Xinjiang uh, cotton, um, it's actually now um, info- like information war in Chinese internet about uh, Xinjiang uh, cotton because the government uh, said it's our right to fight for our cotton. And now in Chinese uh, internet, there is a big company. company um, when uh, Chinese ordinal people, they're writing comments, they're writing articles and so on and so on. Uh, boycotting, just basically boycotting uh, Nike, H&M and so on and so on. They're saying like, if uh, the exact, the exact uh, citation is you, uh, don't want our Xinjiang cotton, but you want to make money in China. Mm-hmm. Are just dreaming it, like it it it's not gonna happen. And it is like okay. it is trying their best now to put this topic like to the top of internet. And yeah, it's. <laughs> this is just I'm, this is just like ordinary people voluntarily doing this, or is it a paid campaign in the social media? Uh, that's that's uh, 50-50, I, I suppose, because um, when I'm translating uh, translating comments, usually there are about 10 to 15 people who are uh, doing this, like, um, usually, like, every day, on every day thing, and I think that it's their job, because you're, you don't have such so much free time to do it, like, every day, write a comment on mm-hmm. every paper and so on and so on. Of course, there uh, there are people who have who have so much for them, but I, I'm not believing this. I'm not buying it. Um, so I'm believing that um, these people they are a paid army. Um, there is a, a term in um, um, in Chinese internet. Um, it's called Wu uh, Mao Dang. Uh, it's basically a fifty cent army. 50 cent party, 50 cent party. It's people who are paid by the government uh, to write comments uh, to defense, um, to uh, to subordinate uh, party, yeah, communist mm-hmm. party. Um, and of course, there are comments uh, sometimes against this. They're not very, <laughs> they're not very uh, common because uh, there is uh, censorship in China, and all bad comments uh, should be um, uh, erased. Not all of them. There are some part of them to uh, to have this image that it's free free will, uh, free <laughs> free speech. Uh, you can say anything, but of course, no, you can't say anything. Um, and usually, um, me, I'm translating comments uh, about Russia, and uh, if we say uh, if we speak about Russia, the image of Russia in China is very good, and the image of U.S. Um, USA and uh, uh, EU. Of course, bad. Yeah, there is like two camps of it. Uh, so if you write a comment uh, against against USA uh, in Chinese internet, you're a good person. Yeah, everybody is supporting you. But if you write something bad, 
something something good um uh, i mean like something good about usa something good about uh, eu you are a, a betrayer of uh, your country and so on and so on and because of this army and it's very powerful yeah you can't say like sanctions are actually good yeah you you're violating uh, human rights in Xinjiang and so on and so on and you you will be like beaten uh, to death in Chinese internet because you can't say these things uh, there are of course uh, of course uh, sometimes I met such comments I, I meet them uh, in the internet like but 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 the, 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 but you usually like just mumbling like um, and they're not very powerful nobody supporting them uh, oh, okay that's a very interesting perspective on uh, what's going on especially i, I didn't know about uh, chinese internet and we're talking about uh, social media like wechat right uh yeah wechat and um weibo is the two main uh, two main uh, social media uh, social networks um, and yeah mm, of course there are a lot of comments but mostly i translate comments from uh, websites like huanchu uh, huanchu shubao it's um, uh, it's the main newspaper that writes a lot of programming articles uh, guancha uh, guancha is uh, mostly common uh, news and uh, of course a lot of pressure from government too there uh, but not so much as uh, from you know Juan Tushibao because Juan Tushibao is very this newspaper is very ideological ideological like a lot uh, sometimes really difficult to translate these uh, articles. <laughs> well, but that's a, that's still a very that gives you a very interesting perspective on on what's going on. They are very powerful in their propaganda. Uh, thank you a lot for, for sharing this information. It's, it's a very valuable input in terms of uh, how people from the outside, from the inside of China can, can see the situation. I actually uh, wanted to say one thing more okay. um, about the situation in Xinjiang itself. Like, uh, of course, nobody, nobody uh, from outside, nobody from inside either can tell you uh, what is really going on there? Because I asked my friends, like recently I was preparing for this uh, conversation and I asked my friends from China, like Chinese people, I asked them about um, what is going on actually in Xinjiang? Like, what are you doing there? What 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 is the situation there? Do you know about camps? Do you know about uh, all these things and so on and so on? Uh, and they said, uh, no, we usually avoid Xinjiang people we are actually afraid of them because uh, it's a lot of terrorist uh, attacks there. Uh, it's very dangerous to leave them. Uh, but one of my friends said um, they have a very good meat, but we're afraid of that uh, of their people. And this is all that you can um, that you can get from people outside of Xinjiang, uh, even in China, even inside China. Uh, because actually, really, nobody knows what is going on there, and uh, the Chinese government insists that there is nothing, nothing illegal there. There is no forced labor, no uh, genocide, uh, no uh, persecution, nothing. Everything is good, everything right. Uh, Xinjiang is um, what is what was written uh, in last article, actually uh, published by local government of Xinjiang Uyghur uh, Autonomic Region. It published, uh, it, it is said that 
everything is okay. Xinjiang Uyghur uh, Autonomic Region is um, living good, prosperous. Everything uh, is good. Uh, everything is is even will be even better in future. Uh, and it's like the words of local government. And um, uh, the one thing to defense um, uh, Chinese government um, in front of uh, EU, like EU, uh, they said that, that they were inviting um, European um, Commission to come to Xinjiang and it uh, didn't come. Uh, but I know there were some consequences about uh, one Chinese um, um, journalist. Uh, that's why European Commission didn't come and so on and so on. But uh, the fact was, uh, yeah, this incident was, they were invited that they didn't come. So they like lost this uh, opportunity to, to look for situation like from inside. Well, okay. Uh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you a lot. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed our episode. Um, make sure you follow us, you rate us five stars on Apple Podcast. And make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and our Twitter. You can find us as United Citizens of Europe. See you next week.